We supply industries that are a part of this wartime effort to feel purpose when we get up in the morning, even if we're worried. So leading is bringing everybody to that same place where they realize that what we do is important. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. What's up, folks? You know, as I was going back listening through this interview, I was just thinking that this is probably one of the most fun conversations that I've had on this show. We cover a lot of ground in this discussion, everything from AI to creativity to the current coronavirus situation, as is kind of the case with every interview these days. But I thought it was a very interesting conversation with a truly fascinating individual. Today, we're joined by Matthew Putman, a man of many talents who is currently the CEO of Nanotronics, a science technology company that is redefining manufacturing by combining robotics, automation, 3D imaging, and artificial intelligence for powering factories. Matthew and his team at Nanotronics have long been focused on enabling the future of manufacturing, but with the COVID-19 pandemic upon us, there's more urgency than ever to making that future a reality. Which brings us to the three things you can expect from today's show. First, we're going to get to know Matthew and Nanotronics. We'll discuss the smart factory that they've built right in the heart of Brooklyn, New York, while getting a taste for their technology and how they're using it to advance the manufacturing industry across a number of different verticals. Second, we're going to jump into COVID-19, both in the context of global supply chains and also how the current situation is accelerating innovation. There's a great mix of examples and actionable advice in this part of the conversation, and it even leads us to comparing the current pandemic to a wartime situation. Matthew addresses this not only in terms of being resourceful when it comes to resources and manpower, but also in terms of how you lead a team through times of uncertainty. Finally, we end with some good vibes. Matthew shares some incredible and quite frankly pretty inspirational reflections on the intersections around creativity, the arts, and his work in artificial intelligence, and how others can find inspiration and new ideas as well. If you enjoy this episode, or if you've been listening for a while and like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review for Manufacturing Happy Hour over at iTunes, or Apple Podcasts as it's commonly called. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It is very easy to leave that five-star rating. You just have to hit a five-star button kind of towards the bottom of Apple Podcasts on your iPhone. And to leave that review, there's a write a review button on there. It's kind of small, but it doesn't take too long. The review can be as short as one sentence, and honestly, any feedback helps. With that, it's time to jump into today's interview. Let's take an audio journey to Nanotronics Smart Factory in Brooklyn for our conversation with Matthew Putman. So I I guess I have to start off with just a a casual topic. You're, among other things, a jazz pianist, correct? (laughs) Yes, I play free jazz piano with some great players in New York, I'll tell you. I'm really lucky. 
I was going to say, it looked like you had quite the background. You'd played with some impressive people, and you're also a composer as well, too. Is that correct? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm not a great composer. I'm not a great jazz musician, but I do a bit of both, yes. All right. All right. Well, it's good to have some balance in there, and, and we will get back to that at okay. some point in the conversation. But before we get too far, I want to make sure I give you a proper introduction to our audience. So for the folks out there listening today, our guest is a Renaissance man for the 21st century. He is a scientist, author, teacher, and as we just said, a composer, among other things, and the CEO of Nanotronics, a company that is revolutionizing manufacturing right in the heart of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Putman. Hello. Thank you. Well, it's great to be on it. Thank you. It's great to have you here, and uh, it's it's a very timely opportunity to have you on based on not only your expertise in manufacturing, but some of the things that you've been talking around COVID-19. All topics we'll get to later in the conversation, but since this is Manufacturing Happy Hour, got to start off with our typical question. Let's say, uh, you know, you're at a bar somewhere in Brooklyn and someone comes up to you and asks, you know, Matthew, what what is it that you do? What do you tell them in 30 seconds? Nanotronics is really looking to redefine the way that manufacturing has been done. I I kind of think of manufacturing as being stagnant for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. That's the only pessimistic thing I will say, (laughs) uh, because I generally see that we are on the precipice of some incredibly exciting things. And Nanotronics is, you know, works on the cusp of that as well. Uh, We make artificial intelligence that uh, powers factories. So it's AI, we make our own robotics. So when we're gonna talk about manufacturing, we're very distributed. We're a vertically integrated company that does everything from making hardware to putting this computational solution on top of it. Uh, We make super resolution microscopes. The Mm -hmm. goal being to scale materials that are difficult or expensive to do Mm -hmm. and different types of processes. So we're this, this combination of a lot of different technologies, but most excitingly, we get to work with companies in all different areas. So we get this this view, this sort of drone view of what's going on um, and what the common issues are with those companies and the common potential solutions. Would it be possible maybe to put, you know, you mentioned scaling materials that are difficult to do. That was that was one thing that jumped out there. Would you maybe be able to put that in the context of an example or a story that illustrates that for our audience? Yeah, so this how it started was I was a I was I had a lab at you know at a university where I was a professor, mm-hmm. and this lab made incredible things. Uh, we had uh, nano materials that worked uh, for looking at UV light so that you could have photovoltaics that work twenty four hours a day. We made regenerative medicine scaffolds. Uh, so when you had a failed organ, you could regrow uh, organs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did an enormous amount of things, um, really in the nanotech space. Uh, but those things you could only celebrate very quickly because we realized that we couldn't get them out into the world at scale. Mm-hmm. So those were the initial inspirations. And also a lifetime I had spent in factories. My parents had a business that I ended up running. And I'd spent time on factory floors that were doing high-scale, low-margin businesses. Yeah. When we got into business, some of the ideas uh, were working on very um, high-energy-efficient devices. 
So next generation semiconductors, uh, uh, genomic sequencing, quantum computing, and, uh, and, and two hard drives that you know, power the cloud. And those are all in different layers, levels of development. Some are in a part of the stack of your iPhone, mm-hmm. um, and some of them we're not seeing yet, um, but about to, such as quantum computing. So whether it's taking new businesses like a quantum computing uh, company or LiDAR for autonomous, autonomous vehicles, or it's taking an older industry that needs to reinvent itself like semiconductors or even chemicals and tire companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to look at all these things and it looks the same to us and have similar, and they all have similar issues. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that you bring up your background in manufacturing, uh, your family's background in manufacturing, I should say, high scale, low margin. One of the one of the big questions I have for you, and you kind of hinted at it earlier with your comment about how manufacturing hasn't changed in 50 years, which if if you listen to many of the interviews that you've done, that seems to be a common theme in, uh, in a lot of your discussions. When it comes to nanotronics, what what I've heard about you is that you're building the first smart factory in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And smart manufacturing is a big topic that comes up on the show quite a bit. So I'd love to hear your definition around what is what is a smart factory? Probably elaborating on some of the things that you had just mentioned in that last comment. Yes, I would hate to say that we're building the the first of anything mm-hmm. uh, in this way. It would be super arrogant of me. <laughs> it's try, It's trying to figure out how to call what we're doing <laughs> what we're doing. Sure. Certainly within New York, Mm-hmm. You know, New York was this place where things used to be made. The Brooklyn Navy Yards was the largest manufacturer in the tri-state area mm-hmm. near, near New York. And that that's, is no longer the case. So instead of just, you know, making things, we want to make them in a completely different way than, than cities have seen before. Mm-hmm. So for what, what that means to us is doing a lot of what we hope we will do for our customers but it had, and if you were to go into this factory that we're building right now, mm-hmm. it's even true with our factory in California, but especially here mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, where I am right now, uh, you would see manufacturing and manufacturing being as high tech as our AI programmers, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are machines um, that are everything from additive to uh, a machine shop that are using um, next generation software. And mm-hmm. you would see this right as you enter the building. Mm-hmm. Um, but above that, looking down onto the factory floor are, are machine learning experts that are writing new machine learning algorithms. Now, those algorithms will eventually be used for our customers for their applications. But we're lucky enough that at, we actually build something so we can try models on our own products, improve our own margins, and at the same time, have a way to see how well our models work in order to take them to customers. So in a way, we practice what we preach, uh, and hopefully that makes us a better company at the same time. So it's smart in that it's a closed-loop factory. Uh, we, it has this, we, we call a feed-forward and feedback process. It uses something of reinforcement learning that has not been used on factory floors before. It's been used for things such as uh, a division of Alphabet, uh, it's called DeepMind, that uh, mm-hmm. beat the world champion in Go, called AlphaGo. These are what things like reinforcement learning have been used for before. Unbelievably impressive tasks. What if you take those impressive tasks and use them to build something physical? 
So we're going to do that ourselves at the Brooklyn Navy Yard facility and work with our customers to do something like this as well. You mentioned you've been trying this on your own products so far. Is there an example there that you can share on what that closed loop process looks like? So it's it's just getting started. Okay. Uh, now, I mean, our, our, we've been making products now for 10 years mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, we get smarter about how we make products. Uh, but the, the first thing that we uh, did to use reinforcement learning, these tactics, and, and some of them you see in our daily life with applications, and some you see in something very sophisticated like AlphaGo, mm-hmm. uh, we, we really proved this out in an additive uh, manufacturing setting. So we did this for the things that we 3D printed. Okay. Uh, we were able to show something, I, I think, in, incredibly exciting for us, which if you were to take something and 3D print it, uh, I, I'm sure that in your in your show, people talk a lot about the future of additive manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet it never seems to quite take off. And uh, it, there are a lot of errors in the process. It's just not perfect yet. Mm-hmm. It's not a Star Trek replicator yet. Right. Uh, but that's where we went ahead. We were able to show that in... 3D printing, we could make a product that was stronger and better than the instructions that you would normally give it through doing something CAD drawings and um, something in 3D printing you call slicing code, which are just the instructions on how to build something. And it was able to do this. When I say us, it was the artificial intelligence algorithms Mm -hmm. were able to make choices that humans would never think to make. Mm -hmm. So it's just not something that we could have figured out and it made a better product uh, than would have been made before. So we started with our things that were additive, but this can apply to any part of our process. And as the factory opens in the next month, we'll start to try this with a lot of different parts of our our robotics and our microscopes and a number of other things that we make. Okay, so you're starting, like you said, on the additive manufacturing side, 3D printing side, and then you're going to extrapolate this into the other products that that you do, and then eventually your customers' products, correct? Right. Well, we're already working with our customers simultaneously. So it's even if our uh, factory uh, only only used some of these what's really important to us is that we work with customers and do it in a different with a different business model than what's done before in order to improve their yields and allow for faster um innovation so iterations um, of their designs so we're already working with several customers uh, to implement this Mm -hmm. and i think we'll all kind of go online at the same time and those are places we're working with a company that does crystal growth to make uh, UV LEDs that uh, something called UVC, which is really important right now because it's the best disinfectant in the world, and it's light that does not damage the human skin. Mm. Uh, it's been a really hard thing to scale in the past because the yields are so low, so it's been very expensive. So this is the perfect kind, perfect kind of product uh, for something like what we do. Uh, but we're, we're working with a company that uh, that. Uh, uh, makes water purification mm-hmm. products that is a completely different uh, way of doing it. We're working with a vegan leather company. And so we're trying to look through a, a range of different verticals to see if we have generalized AI models that will work in many different industries. 
That's a, a great way to describe it. And I think the examples that you provided uh, not only provide that variety, but some timely applications as well, particularly um, around crystal growth and UV, given the state of things uh, in the world right now. And that's that's kind of the next spot where I'd like to take the conversation. You've talked about the impact of COVID-19 on supply chains in the past. So I'd love to get some of your thoughts as to how you're seeing things change and maybe where this, I'll call it a revolution in manufacturing, could have a positive impact. Yes. In a time that is so unbelievably scary and turbulent, changing every day, uh, what this has done is take a lot of the things that not just us but companies in biologics, companies that are making uh, products like UVC, mm-hmm. and taking that long-term planning and making it comp- very urgent. Very urgent, meaning that we that the things that we had started, that we had six-month, one-year plans on, uh, we have to turn on now. We wake up every morning knowing it's a different day and that we have to get it done. And it's not just us. It's the world in general. We see this... Um, with uh, vaccines and, uh, and and different type of biologics uh, that are using uh, uh, synthetic biology, for instance. Mm-hmm. Synthetic biology was looked as uh, something that would come years down the road. You know, taking a step back, you look at genomic sequencing, and genomic sequencing works incredibly well, but it's kind of expensive. Mm-hmm. But the goal of that industry is to get down to a hundred dollar genome. If you get down to a hundred dollar genome then you're able to do uh, uh, genetic modification and you're able to do personalized medicine. These are things that even uh, three, four months ago uh, were talked about in years. Um, now we're all talking about them as things that need to happen in, for civilization right now. At the same time, we see this vulnerability uh, to supply chains. Uh, it, you can't make things incredibly fast if you can't ship them around the world and you can't send people around the world. So I mean this in no nationalistic standpoint. I absolutely believe in trade. Uh, but when we talk about distributed manufacturing systems, we see right now the need for this. We need mm-hmm. to move quickly. And it's hard to deal with uh, politics. It's hard to deal with uh, different transportation. So we have to figure out how we can build things ourselves from the ground up, just as other countries do too. Uh, And that brings up a lot of issues around where minerals exist, who has ownership of minerals. Mm -hmm. Uh, It brings up what is in our atmosphere that we're not using as feedstock. It brings up the need to do additive manufacturing more quickly. Mm -hmm. And those are all supply chain related. Great. Two great points. You know, you started with long-term planning becoming more accelerated, more and more urgent. Probably the biggest theme on this show has been around digital transformation on how that has accelerated and how people need to operate plants remotely and things along those lines. And then also the impact on supply chains and where you need some of that more localized resources now. I have a question on that one, but first I got to do a quick definition check. Synthetic biology, you, ter- you threw that term out. Um, let's do the, the, you're at a bar and someone asks you what synthetic biology is again. Can you give us a quick definition on that for someone that might be hearing that for the first time? 
Well, first of all, they'd be better to be at a bar with somebody that that is a molecular <laughs> biologist and works in that. Um, but s- synthetic biology is the ability to alter a g- the genome of either a viral vector mm-hmm. um, or of RNA to be used as a delivery system and to create organisms ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so, so you can start from the genetic level, from the genes themselves, in order to build something on that level. Um, that gives enormous amount of power uh, and you know, power to be able to ta- uh, attack certain. In this, in the case of COVID, it, to attract antibodies uh, that are specific to a part of the genome. Um, that we ha- that not us, but that the that, that the world of smart people have created. Uh, but it can range the whole way from um, a single delivery vector like this to actually creating organisms. Yeah, yeah. And and I think hanging out with a molecular biologist at a bar sounds like a perfectly good time to be. But I uh, appreciate the the levity there. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, they 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 have a good idea on how to mix a good cocktail. I would think that's true. Nat- natural mixologists, as we'll call them, <laughs> they would love that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Concept Systems, who you can find at conceptsystemsinc.com. Concept Systems is an independent systems integrator and your automation solution partner for anything from antiquated control system retrofits to greenfield controls coordination and project management. Whether it's process or discrete control, Concept Systems has been doing this for over 20 years. They've partnered with best-in-class companies like Rockwell Automation and Fnook to conceptualize, design, and build automation systems that include everything like robotics, vision systems, and manufacturing intelligence solutions. Personally, I've been familiar with Concept Systems for a couple years now, and I have to say I'm a huge fan of the amazing team they have over there. With national presence across the U.S., they have application experience in more than just a few industries, including food and beverage, aerospace, automotive, building products, and metals, just to name a few. If you have a project coming up requiring an automation solution partner or even a main automation contractor, head over to conceptsystemsinc.com and get in touch. They take an extremely methodical, risk-mitigating approach to project management that allows you to hit your project timelines and keep focusing on your core business. Oh, and if you want to hear a bit more about Concept Systems, make sure to check out Episode 7 of Manufacturing Happy Hour, which is our panel discussion on smart manufacturing, featuring Concept Systems' very own Director of Sales and Marketing, Ryan Wasmond. And now, back to today's episode. You know, going to your supply chain comment as well, another thing, and this this just brought this back into mind, you've talked about, I think, opportunity zones in other interviews before. And if I remember that right, that's kind of like the importance of a localized innovation community, localized manufacturing community. Does that play into your comment around supply chains as well and needing to have, you know, being creative with more localized resources at the moment? Well, it does. I don't think that most people who think about opportunity zones think like this at all. Uh, mm-hmm. It seemed clear to me when you know, opportunity zones are part of uh, a tax bill uh, that gives people a, a chance to 
uh, make a long-term investment and mm -hmm. not pay capital gains until later on. Okay. So, uh, uh, and based on your initial investment value, not on the value at the time uh, that that you that you take your money out. Mm, so it's an it. incredible tax break. Okay. Uh, now it made sense to me, and I think that the people who had this in mind when they started it, that what this would do is take neighborhoods, communities that. Uh, that were less economically sound communities mm -hmm. and be able to build business, build businesses around it, build opportunities for work, uh, opportunities to enrich the area by giving people purpose. Mm -hmm. That's how I saw it from the second I heard about this mm -hmm. and having an investment vehicle for that, that is different, that could look at an entire ecosystem of companies made a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. uh, that, still is the way that I think opportunity zones can be extremely important. Now, when you talk to most people, they will talk about using the OZ tax break as uh, being a, a, a real estate investment. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this becomes, uh, I wouldn't say exactly cynical, but it becomes at least limiting uh, in the way that something like this could be used. So I still continue to look at OZs as a chance to bring an ecosystem of businesses that will make a neighborhood more thrive in a completely different way than it currently does. Not just with retail, but with things that are being built. Understood. And and my apologies on that. I did not realize there was the whole tax element to that as well. I thought that was a, a term that you had been using for, for just the general region. So uh, thank you for providing clarity on that. Uh, one, one thing that's come into mind, particularly around your comments about long-term planning becoming more urgent and the change to supply chains, what actionable advice would you give to the manufacturing leaders that listen to this show as to the things that they can be doing now to protect their operations or keep growing their operations during this turbulent time? I think that part of it is an obvious thing that I guess is inherent in the question itself, which is to think about proximity. Mm -hmm. uh, what are those things that are around us that can help us build something new? Um, I don't know why I'm going to tell a quick anecdote that you can certainly cut from this, but um, <laughs> I, I, th I think of uh, the, this um, COVID-19 situation, um, as many people have talked about, as being a war. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a wartime. War Unlike something like a trade war, yeah. which, which is also, I think, war, but uh, has a very different connotation. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, in, in World War uh, II, there's this great discovery by this um, man who worked for B.F. Goodrich named Waldo Seaman. He invented the first plastics, PVC, and he's a sort of famous American scientist. And during World War II, the United States was cut off from the supply of rubber mm -hmm. that was in Southeast Asia. So this, you know, it's a similar sort of Manhattan Project kind of project that the United States came up with was having to build a synthetic tire. And uh, <clears throat> this was a call to action. And there's a nice intrigue story where Waldo Seaman went to Germany and, and sort of learned their formula for how they were doing it. Mm -hmm. But it's a great story of coming together to figure out how to build something in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. Now, we have a similar kind of mineral issue right now. Uh, right now, 
China owns uh, most of the rare earth materials in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, this came as a bit of a surprise to me uh, when we looked at these charts. Uh, and this means that everything from computer chips, uh, and, you know, these to you know photovoltaics and all the things that are made around it, uh, we have trouble getting um, new battery technology. If we had to build it here, this would be a problem. But there are things that we can build. Uh, there is an abundance of nitrogen, so and you know we have access to aluminum, so we can make something called aluminum nitride. So if there there are there's uh, gallium oxide and, and, and gallium nitride. Mm-hmm. There's these new these other materials that can act as semiconductors. They are semiconductors, but they have even better properties. They have better uh, they have better power. They're they're better for conserving power, and they're also three dimensional. So they have a chance to get around this problem of Moore's law that will come to an end. So suddenly, this is something that could be built in the United States. Mm-hmm. It could be built anywhere, but it could be built in the United States. But because of the ease at which trade had worked in the past, we probably hadn't in, in spent as much time, money, and dedication to doing it. Sure. Now we should look at these technologies that are kind of working and look to optimize their yields, look to start to try to build them as a necessity, as a wartime effort, um, as, as if we no longer had access to silicon, for instance. What do you do then? You invent something different. So that's, that's part of it. The other part is to realize when you're talking about proximity that there are machine shops and there are people that would like to learn how to build things. And they're, they're probably in your town. Uh, but instead, we think about having to buy them elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, we, we think that it's possible to make partnerships to train local community members, to make user interfaces so that training is incredibly quick so that we can machine parts. We could do you know, additive manufacturing the way that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. Or you could start putting these back in your own facilities. If you go to a lot of factories now, they, they will talk about the glory days when they used to make the machines that they sell. Yeah, Almost everybody outsourced when things looked cheap. And mm-hmm. we're less expensive. Mm-hmm. Now it's time to insource again and to use technologies like artificial intelligence to make that possible. Those are a couple of, uh, of examples. It's really showing that this, stu- this stuff is possible. We have just lost the sense of, of what making really is anymore. I think that's a great answer. Um, and by the way, I'm definitely keeping that in the interview because I think the uh, – your scenario or your example of this being wartime is a great example. I mean, we we are at war against a uh, a virus that are that's disrupting supply chains, our daily lives. That brings up another question that pops into mind, and I'm talking, I'm asking this to the leaders that I interview on this show more often now. How do you, as the leader of Nanotronics, how do you lead in wartime? What do you think is one of the most important? leadership qualities or things you can do to lead a company through uncertain times like this? So I don't, I don't want to say that I get this right. Okay. It's, it's, it's a real challenge, Mm -hmm. but I think that if we look at our team and we look at the products that we serve, the, the customers that we serve and the products we make, 
this is why we're right now, by the way, as as New York is is shut down for business. Mm-hmm. It, uh, you know, our, our, our factories in California is shut down for business, but we are allowed to still work because we are deemed an essential business. Mm-hmm. We supply industries that are a part of this wartime effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that being able to express that those things that you're making are part of the effort to win this war, mm-hmm. to feel purpose when we get up in the morning, even if we're, if we're worried. Um, if we want to be around our families, and we should want to, but still feel a drive and a purpose that some that goes beyond ourselves, um, it's certainly what keeps me going through it, uh, get, getting through this, and actually producing more than before. I feel much more productive than I did before mm-hmm. because I have this urgency. So leading is hopefully bringing everybody to that same place yeah. where they realize that what we do is important. Now, that we could say that well, nanotronics is an essential business, so that only applies to essential business. But keeping the economy going in general, um, keeping your family fed, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that, that you are a part of something bigger is essential also. So I think this applies beyond nanotronics, certainly. For sure. That was in and there are no right or wrong answers to that question. It's more getting that anecdotal advice from the leaders that are out there bringing their teams and companies through these times. And I think your point about giving people that sense of purpose and helping them understand that they play a part in what is ultimately a small part of the solution to this big challenge right now. I think that's that's great advice. I hope the manufacturing leaders that are listening to this are are pulling that and adding that to their toolbox. We're we're wrapping up the interview at this point. We're getting towards the end. So we're going to we're going to switch things up a bit, add a little levity to it. So I did want to ask because we talked about this at the start, you know, you're you're a jazz musician, you're a connoisseur of the arts in many ways, I'd say. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts around the intersection of arts and sciences, because you have more than your share of experience in both. How does one influence the other and vice versa? The more that I work on something like artificial intelligence, the more I realize what's important about being human. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have this great ability to interact and be creative in ways that are strange, that can't be programmed, that they can't be trained in the same way. It's a great mystery of humanity. Um, and you see it in movement when I, I'm a part of a, I'm on the board of a dance um, uh, nonprofit. You see it in movement. You see it when you're improving in jazz and you don't know why and how it works that you're able to respond so quickly and combine as a group to communicate through music. It's faster than speaking a lot of times. And this, this gives us a sense of what experimentation is like. Um, when, if, if things are not institutionalized in the same way that science is considered institutionalized or business is considered um, a type of bureaucracy, um, but instead is looked at as something that is purely creative in the way that I see in the dance world, in the theater world, in, in music. Mm-hmm. This can be a very inspiring thing. And it certainly has made my life richer. You know, that is probably, you're going to have to quote yourself on that in the future. The more I work on artificial intelligence, <laughs> the more I understand what's important about being human. That is a 
killer way to describe that. Oh. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you. No, no, no it, was, it was it was great. I, I really appreciate that answer. You know, with with everything you do, you know, what's something you wish more people knew about you or knew about the work that you do? You have such a dynamic career, such a dynamic list of experiences. Is there something that in all these conversations you're like, you know, I wish someone would ask me about this? Hmm. You know, I'm I, I'm not so sure that it's important that people know about me. Um, I what what I I'm gonna say something that just talk about improvisation. Okay. <laughs> question. Okay. I love it. I, I, I want it. I think, and this doesn't just apply to me, but I, I, I wish people realized that it's not so hard to invent. And what I mean by that is that the possibilities to do things and to create uh, you know, uh, don't require you to be an, an amazing mathematician, for instance. It doesn't require you to be incredibly specialized in one field. You can actually just get up in the morning and come up with an idea, write it down, or go over to the piano and play it. Mm -hmm. And you can make a big difference that way. And any ideas that I've ever had or anything that I have done um, ha has come from um, a, a, a just belief that it is possible to do it and just trying it. Sometimes I'll fail, sometimes I'll succeed. But I want people to know that they can do things themselves and they can talk to me about the craziest ideas and we'll give it a shot. Love that. Love that. You've had a lot of great advice, a lot of inspirational advice as well, too, in this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time today. As we wrap up, I want to make sure our audience knows how to connect with you and your website, if I remember right, is nanotronics.co, that's .co, and you were telling me before the interview about your think space within your website. Do you want to describe that to the audience really quickly so they know a little bit about what's inside of that? Sure. So uh, if you go to the front page of our website, you see a little bit about our vision, but you see the products that we sell. We have a section of our website that's called Think Space that includes a, po a podcast that that I run uh, and you know, we don't talk about nanotronics all the time. We talk about, uh, I talk to people the way you, you are to try to, you know, get inspiration for uh, people who listen and, uh, and inspiration for myself. There are blogs that I've written, blogs that other people at nanotronics is, have written. Uh, there are interesting links to some of these ideas uh, that are evolving all the time and some ideas of others that are in our ecosystem. So go to ThinkSpace as, uh, uh, that is on our website. It might be interesting. For you guys and i will definitely link up to that in the show notes so that you all can learn more about matthew and the work that he and his company uh are all the work they're getting into um and the things not related to their company as well in there i look forward to exploring that myself as well oh you've been so kind thank you oh not a problem matthew thanks so much for being on the show for those of you listening we'll catch you back here on manufacturing happy hour real soon Hey, thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Matthew and the team at Nanotronics for making this interview possible. 
If you liked what you heard on today's show, if you're looking to dive into more information around nanotronics or maybe the think space that Matthew had mentioned towards the end, you can find all those resources over at manufacturinghappyhour.com. Specifically, this is episode 14, so manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 14 will take you to everything that we mentioned throughout this conversation. As a call to action, since we did start jumping into the topic of wartime leadership leading through the current uncertainty that's upon us in the midst of COVID-19, consider forwarding this podcast to another manufacturing leader that you know, maybe someone within your company, maybe one of your peers that runs some uh, a different organization, maybe someone in your own personal supply chain. But if you thought it was helpful, surely someone else in your network probably will feel the same way. One of the big goals here at Manufacturing Happy Hour is to foster community within the manufacturing space. And if you want to continue the conversation with other manufacturing leaders, consider joining our free LinkedIn group, which is the Manufacturing Happy Hour LinkedIn community, where we talk about these topics and then many other issues that impact manufacturers all the time. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. Once again, if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at iTunes. That'll be it for that pitch this week because it's time to wrap up. We've got quite a bit of stuff coming here on Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon, including more leadership interviews as well as a cybersecurity miniseries brought to you by Rockwell Automation. A lot of exciting times ahead. In the meantime, grab a drink, stay innovative, stay thirsty. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.